Okay, are we ready to start? I'm ready to start? Yes. All right, very good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, I am sorry I am late due to uh, a wonderful baptism in the first service, and uh, I might have preached a little long too, who knows. <laughs> Some people nodding, yes. <laughs> Uh, well, here we are, and, and we're running a little short. Now, I say, this, I say this so that you'll throw a desperate hand up in the air. If it starts getting 9.15 or so, please let me know, because I've, I've got to stop and get over to church. 10, 10, 10. Oh, 10.15, yes, 10.15, sorry. Sorry, 10.15. Okay, now we left off in Revelation chapter 9, and as I expressed to you last week, to me, this what we've been through, what we're kind of in the middle right now, tends to be among the hardest parts to interpret of Revelation, simply because, at least from our 21st century perspective, the imagery is really out there. It's really out there, and it's really hard to even conceive of other than in, in purely poetic kinds of terms. And maybe that's what it is, what it means, what it's, uh, even in the first century context, um, what, it, what it meant and how it was to be received. But there's not just, I mean, every time I read this, there's just a little tinge, you know, of, I know I'm not getting quite all of this, and I'm not sure any of the commentaries I read, no matter how many I expand to, are quite getting all of this, or the gist of this section. It is, uh, it, it's challenging stuff. Now, where we are, of course, is, is in the organization of Revelation. We're seeing the throne room with the one seated upon the throne, the Lamb, and the seven torches, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're seeing everything emanate from this throne room. We, rem we recall the drama of the Lamb taking the scroll from the right hand of the Father and opening the seven seals. Everything that comes upon the earth as each one of those seals is opened emanates from the throne room. Again, reassuring us and comforting us. This is the point about Revelation. This, even the scariest parts, quote-unquote, are a comfort because they are showing that God is aware of these things and he is in control of these things and he is using these things for his own good purposes. Now, the seven seals are opened and in just a beautiful, beautiful way of art, the seventh seal opens into the new set of seven, the new revelation of seven, the seven trumpets. And that's what we've been going through here. Of course, there are seven trumpet angels and an eighth angel in the middle. We get these beautiful lines about the angel offering much incense on the heavenly altar. So you just picture huge billows of sweet-smelling incense. And these are the prayers of the saints. And as the incense ascends, the angel takes the bowl that he, that he used for the incense and he scoops into the altar and he grabs the fiery coals. And as the incense ascends, the coals descend. 
you can see the difference of, of how God, God receives those who believe in him, as their prayers as sweet-smelling incense. Those who reject him, he is going to afflict, and he's going to afflict in hope that all men would come to the knowledge of the truth and thus be saved. That all men would say, wait a minute, I'm mortal, I'm a sinner. And as we're going to see, this <laughs> increasingly what becomes obvious is that this does not affect what God intends it to affect. People don't repent. We even see that today, don't we? And our own pandemic. I mean, what more of a constant reminder, particularly in the early, in the early days when we were just, so, I mean, I remember going back and, and we, we were thinking maybe the mortality rate was going to be as high as 20%. I mean, what an opportunity to reflect on our mortality, to reflect on our utter and complete dependence upon God, to reflect on our accountability toward God and the great deficiency we have, the need for a Savior, and then to open our ears and receive the fullness of Christ crucified for sinners, to receive the fullness of his gifts, to see baptism with the great profundity it has where all our sins are washed away to receive Holy Communion with the great profundity it has, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, entering time and space in our presence that we might become partakers of it and thus be cleansed, made immortal, have our sins forgiven and receive it as the cup of the everlasting joy. So what an opportunity to reflect on all of these things. What did the world do? Apparently nothing. I, I mean, maybe we decided it was time to burn some cities. <laughs> that was about our response. There was no great turning to God. There was no great spiritual search that was initiated. If anything, things got worse. It was revelatory. It was a revelatory event of who's who in the zoo, frankly, because the tyrants became more tyrannical. The unbelievers became more unbelieving. And the Christians became more resolute and more bold. And I, this, this is a very painful thing for me to say. I don't say this flippantly at all. But judgment began at the household of God, too. And a judgment has taken place in the churches where many Christians have said, I value my health and my convenience. And you know what? It's kind of nice having these weekends anyway. So until there's a cure, even though I'm 25 years old and my wife's 23, we've got no kids, until there's a cure, we won't be back. That's a judgment. It's a, it's a judgment in the true biblical sense. Uh, the imagery is just like a it's like a it's like a freight train running down the track, and you're either you're either going to be on the track or off of it. Now that's a judgment. It's a it's a crisis in Greek, a crisis. That's the word for judgment, and it sorts everything out. So that's what we've seen. Okay, so increasingly then what we're going to see as we progress through the revelation is that these crises do not have the intended heavenly effect as the angel empties his bowl uh, from the, uh, the the bowl of hot coals from the altar down upon the earth and each of the trumpets blow and the plagues come what we're going to see is that these things are Effect are given to affect unbelievers in specific, and there is virtually no effect. Now, the two biblical Old Testament motifs we want to have in the back of our mind 
in the first place comes to us is what happens when the trumpets are blown. We see plagues, and the plagues are described in language sometimes identical, sometimes at least reminiscent of the plagues that were poured out upon Egypt and the great exodus, which again ought to alert our Christian ears to the great comfort of these things. That's why Jesus, at the end of his eschatological sermon, where he's listed all the terrible, wretched things that are going to happen to the, to the cosmos, says, when these things draw near, lift up your heads. When these things take place, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So just as in the midst of the plagues, we see the plagues of Egypt, that, pre, that, that was uh, what came before the exodus so as we see God's plagues before the earth, we ought to not despair but rejoice seeing that our exodus is near. That Jesus is leading us in an exodus is made clear on the Mount of Transfiguration where the, that is precisely the thing he's discussing with Moses and Elijah. Okay. The second major motif we want to have in our minds, aside from the plagues and the exodus, the blowing of the trumpets and the, the number seven associated with us take us back to the conquering of the promised land and to the gateway fortified city that, want, that was really impenetrable, undefeatable, and that was Jericho. Jericho was the door, the locked door that no one could open that would lead into the promised land. So you recall in at least broad contour, the blowing of the trumpets, the shouting, and the parading of the ark, the ark of the covenant, and the walls crumble, and the great door to the promised land is open. So great evil befalls the enemies of God, but it's great good for the people of God. So as the seven trumpet angels blow their trumpets, we want to see Jericho, this world, falling and we want to see the gates of the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, beginning to open. And as if, I mean, as if we needed to prove this motif any further, lo and behold, what we're going to see show up is the Ark of the Covenant. It's going to show up in the chapters to come. All right. So the first four trumpets afflict the earth, various parts of the earth. The fifth is different. After the first four trumpets, do you remember the eagle flies through mid-heaven and his message is woe, 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 threefold woe for the, for the last three trumpets to be sounded. These are the greatest and worst plagues of all. The fifth we covered last week. Here you have the demonic locusts that come up from the pits of hell. And they afflict only those who are not sealed with the name of God. Now, we Christians obviously know to be sealed with the name of God is to be baptized into his name, into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is a spiritual affliction that God sends or God permits only to afflict those who are not baptized, who do not believe in him. And again, they're not making a... John's not interested in this distinction. Are you baptized and don't believe? Are you believe? Do you believe and aren't baptized? I mean, he's not interested in that distinction. The assumption is, if you're baptized, you believe. If you believe, you're baptized. That's just the operating assumption. Okay? Now, what we see then are this demonic army, this attack, um, and you can take a look at chapter 9, verse 7, for, again, this creepy, creepy description. 
and appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Now, one thing to point out here, that language, prepared for battle, in conjunction with the Revelation 7 language, where the, where the people, if you flip back to 7, you'll even see the 144,000 of Israel sealed, and they're lined up in battle array. In other words, what John is doing here is showing us the contours of the spiritual warfare that's taking place. Despite what it might look like to our eyes, there really are no casualties. Those who are sealed by the name of God are safe. And, yet, and, and then the, those who, uh, the invading demonic army who's going to be described here uh, in chapter 9, verse 7 and following, uh, they, they get their prey. But it is a, it is, we're starting to see contours of a spiritual battle take place. That's just important to have in the back of your mind, along with the Jericho motif. So, again, chapter 9, verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. There's at least the second time we've seen battle, along with additional imagery. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. We were introduced to him earlier. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is Apollyon. Uh, most take this to be another name for Satan. Uh, if it's not, it's simply one of the higher-ups under Satan's command. Then we read, The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So there's the fifth trumpet. Now, in this respect, Brighton has uh, this, this way of think, having us think about the imagery. These demons have faces like humans and hair like that of women. They will act with human intelligence in cunning deception as well as with human beauty in cruel attraction. Their teeth are like those of lions. In Joel 1.6, when the invading locusts are likened to an invading nation, they are pictured with teeth of a lion and fangs of a lioness. The demon-like creatures here in Revelation 9 will be ferocious and savage in their attack, though they will not physically tear asunder their victims. However, the fierceness of their attack in the mental and spiritual dimensions, which could affect one's physical health as well, will be as if the victim were being torn apart, but not fatally so. And this is probably one of the things that C.S. Lewis, uh, definitely one of the things that C.S. Lewis points out, probably closely connected to this. But again, he asserts that in the West, the devil's greatest trick has been convincing us Westerners that he doesn't exist. While in the East, his favorite trick is convincing Easterners that he exists everywhere. For example, in, in Africa, uh, you get seven exorcisms before breakfast, and that's commonplace. Uh, here, we don't believe, in, unless your head's spinning around and you're spitting split pea soup, uh, the devil isn't real or something like this. Uh, the fact of the matter is there's demonic, there's the, the influence of this army invisibly all around us. There's demonic influence and oppression 
all around us. And it very, very much makes a lot more sense if this is your worldview and if you perceive people this way. Because you'll realize in the first place, yeah, I get, I get the doctrine of original sin. I get that people are depraved and contrary to God. But that doesn't necessarily account for the sheer irrationalism and the unpredictable nature of the evil that they exhibit in their personalities and their actions and behaviors. What much more makes sense is if you have this worldview that there are demonic forces influencing us and influencing things, and they're all around. They're all around. Um, this is not at all alien to Luther's own worldview where he believed that there were devils and demons all over the place and that if God gave us eyes to see, we could hardly even do anything. We would be so terrified. And he scolds us that we do not cling to baptism and the Lord's Supper and the Word as the weapons we need to fight this spiritual warfare. He scolds us that because we don't see, we don't believe, and so we're lazy and uh, complacent. Okay, uh, Brighton continues, their armor is that of a foot soldier. Their scaly backs and flanks perhaps reminded John of the scaly breastplates of Goliath, but more like the breastplates of a Roman soldier would come to mind. Thus, in their attacks, these evil creatures from the abyss would be protected from counterattack. Their defenses make them impervious to their victims, no matter how much the victims might lash out at these devilish attackers. The noise of their attack, as sounded by the loud buzzing of their wings, was in human ears like the noise of chariots and horses rushing into battle. Whether taken as a physical noise of numerous chariot wheels and horses' hooves, which could be deafening the closer they approached, or whether this noise is taken as a metaphor, the fear alone caused by even the rumor of their approach will instill terror in the intended victims." Okay, so just a little bit of a take then from uh, Brighton in the Concordia Commentary. Shall we go on then to uh, the sixth trumpet? Any questions on the fifth or any, anything remaining there? Let's go on to verse 13. Of course, verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And again, by being highlighted as woes, these are the worst of the worst. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Let's pause there for just a moment. The voice from the four horns of the golden altar, that's the incense altar. We know that there's an angel who is there who is offering the incense and pouring out the bowl. Remember, the bowl being poured is a continuous action as each trumpet sounds. It is in all likelihood his voice that is speaking. Um, and of course, he speaks for God. So whether you think it's God or whether you think it's this angel, it really doesn't matter. But it's likely the case that it's this angel standing at the altar who speaks, and he speaks to the sixth angel. Now, when the sixth seal was opened, that was the end of the world in the first set of seven. Okay, so now we want to have that in the back of our minds. Now he says to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
The question that most commentators wrestle with, without really a definitive answer, is if you turn back to chapter 7, verse 1, you see four angels. It's the only other time in, heretofore in Revelation where you see four angels doing something. So some people want to connect these two groups of angels, identify them as the same. Others say, no, this is a different set of four. I simply present it for your uh, consideration. If you look at chapter 7, verse 1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea, or against any tree, etc., etc. Okay, and if you recall, then they are they are holding back uh, these destructive forces until God tells them to let them loose. A similar kind of thing, not identical, but a similar kind of thing is happening here uh, in verse 14 and following. Although you'll note that these four angels are not located at the four corners of the earth. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, if you're a, if you're a first century Jewish-minded person, Jewish Christian, when you hear Euphrates, you're, you're thinking of uh, ancient and present enemies. Ancient and present enemies. Particularly if you're thinking in terms of Old Testament, the Euphrates is the source of all the major enemies of God's people who sweep down. I mean, for example, um, the, uh, the Assyrians who take over the, the northern ten tribes in 722, coming from the Euphrates. The Babylonians who destroy the temple in 586 and, and uh, take, take Judah captive into the Babylonian captivity come from the Euphrates. So that's what this language and imagery probably means in context. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Also interesting because it's the angels themselves who are bound here. So are these evil fallen angels who are going to uh, go about God's purposes of meeting out punishment? Or are these good angels? And if so, why are they bound? Many mysteries here. Many difficulties to think through. Verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Again, this is a very serious woe. And um, the, the hour, the day, the month, and the year is primarily there primarily there to show us that this isn't an accident. Again, God is completely in control of these things. And everything is foreknown to him and everything is established by him. All right, verse 16. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Which I didn't type that into my eye calculator, but one of the commentaries said uh, 200 million. Does that sound right? Anyway. A lot. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode upon them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. So like, Red, orange, and yellow, kind of hellish type colors, hot type colors. 
and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Great. So we have lion-headed horses breathing fire. By these three plagues, uh, by these three plagues, namely the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur. Again, notice the language of plague still going on. So we still want to have that in the back of our mind. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Now, in the preceding vision of the fifth angel, you recall that their power to hurt people was in their, was in their uh, tails, but likewise in their mouths. You see that, for example, in verse 8, um, where their teeth are like lion's teeth. And here, too, then you see a little bit of a parallel that the fire, smoke, and sulfur are coming out of their mouths. So, you know, with that, with that information, you want to keep at least partially in mind, maybe particularly here in the sixth trumpet as opposed to the fifth, that the, that the damage is done by their mouths, which symbolically is by their words, by their speaking. We're going to see that, in, that imagery in spades when we get to Revelation 12. Okay, and then verse 19, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That probably is the take-home point. Even if we're not really satisfied with any interpretation of you know, these demonic armies and what concretely they have meant over the last 2,000 years or might mean in the future. Even if we're not satisfied with that, the take-home point is that even these afflictions do not cause men to repent. You also have a very interesting data point here, and I think, I think for my money, for, it's one of the most accurate statements in terms of understanding what's going on with idolatry, because it allows for both. What do I mean? It allows for both demons, which are something, and idols, which are not. So if you look at verse uh, 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons. What the scriptures tend to teach is that we ought to look at the major religions of the world as actually worshiping demons, as actually worshiping fallen angels who have, you know, under the God of this world, under the principle of the power of the air, have been given these various domains, these various false religions, and are thus leading, as best they're able, billions of people into hell. Now, with that picture in mind, I think you can see a little something about the devil's strategy, too. That the devil would, 
mostly thanks to Hollywood, have us and our attention precisely on the head spinning around and the pea soup flying, as if that were his greatest work. Whereas if you're really looking at the strategy of this thing, that's not his greatest work. That's what he's doing that's obvious and trying to draw attention to himself while he sits back and doesn't draw attention to himself in the real warfare, which is duping billions of souls into everlasting destruction. Luther has uh, this really brilliant way of putting it, a distinction between the white devil and the black devil. Now, in our race-charged age, I have to be clear, it has nothing to do with race whatsoever. What he means is that the devil presents himself in blackness, in darkness, as obviously and manifestly evil in the occult and uh, demonic possessions and this kind of thing. Okay? Uh, satanic cults that torture children. Like, and it's very real and it's very evil, but it's obviously so. But the, that is the devil's minor way of working. In fact, that's really only so that the world in its naivete can say, there's the devil, he's nowhere else, I'm good. That's not going on in me, the devil doesn't have any, anything to do with me, any power over me. Luther says that's precisely the brilliance then of the white or light side of the devil, where he masquerades as an angel of light, where he masquerades as a religion suggesting transcendental truths or morals, where, uh, healing the world, making everything better and good, duping people into worshiping him and worshiping demons that are not God. That's the real work of the devil. And of course, Luther even says, inside the church, as the devil masquerades as an angel of light, you have all manner of false teachers, uh, false prophets, and false Christ within the church. This is the white devil and where he is the most deadly and dangerous. All right. Now, maybe just a word from Brighton in terms of interpreting the... Uh, yes, Brighton talks about the Euphrates in exactly the way I did. He talks about the four angels and goes back and forth as to what... Uh, what they are. Now, here is his description. As, as in the fifth scene, the forces of evil that wreak havoc upon the human race in the sixth scene are demonic in character, as attested by their number and grotesque appearance. They number in the millions. An unimaginable, countless force of cavalry that invades the earth. Such a vast number is reminiscent of the tens of thousands upon thousands of holy angels and chariots which attend God when he left Sinai for his sanctuary, as declared in Psalm 68, 17. Such a number would be staggering, but John attests that he actually heard their number. The horses, in their visionary appearance, had heads like lions, demonstrating that they would terrorize and conquer all before them. In chapter 9, verse 8, the locust-like demons had teeth like those of lions, by which they would torment but not kill. Here, these demonic creatures have heads of lions, by which they not only torment but also kill. For from their mouths they breathe out fire and smoke and brimstone, by which they plague and kill a third of the human population. 
skip ahead just a bit. Their tails have heads and are like serpents. By the three plagues of their mouths they kill. By their serpent-like tails they injure and torment people. This suggests that the two-thirds of humanity that is not killed is nevertheless tormented and made to suffer. All right, so we have the worshiping of actual demons, but we also then have noted here just simple idolatry, that if you go out, you know, and you say, I'm going to take this piece of wood and I'm going to carve it into a god and I'm going to just come up with a name and start worshiping it, it doesn't mean that a demon's behind that. It doesn't mean that a demon flies into it. You're just worshiping wood. You're just worshiping part of creation, okay? So there's false religion that is true worship of demons. There's false religion that is just stupid, and you're not worshiping anything, right? So both of those then are given to us uh, here in, in verse 20, which is why I said I liked it, because it gives us both kinds, worshiping demons and then idols simply made with hands that can't actually see or hear or walk, etc. And then we're told that even of the most... Uh, you know, the most grievous things that mankind is doing, um, they don't repent. They carry on with their murderers, with their murders, with their sorceries, uh, with their sexual immorality, with their thefts. You really have the fifth, sixth, and seventh commandments there. The one stuck in is sorceries, which is very interesting. And sorceries tends to have the connotation of what we would call the occult, um, but it also fits in very much with what we would call uh, New Ageism or mysticism, sorceries, a- including ritualistic use of psychedelic drugs, uh, ritualistic use of meditation or other exercises uh, intending to induce these experiences. Um, these would all be counted sorceries in the ancient world. Okay, so there's no repentance. All right. That is, that is the sixth angel blowing his trumpet. And then what we have here, just as we had in the previous set of seven, between the sixth and seventh seals, we had an interlude where we got to see the church on earth as it looks, you know, we got to see the heavenly vantage point of the church, how it looks on earth and how it looks in heaven. That was chapter seven. Okay, now we have another interlude. And seeing that we have less than a minute, I'm going to pause and just give a couple introductory remarks. This, too, is wild and crazy. But here's the point in terms of this, uh, this imagery and what it means. When God is sending his plagues, nobody's repenting. So what is God's answer? Well, I'm going to give up on him. Well, I'm going to damn him. God's answer is going to be the ministry of the church. God's answer is going to be the ministry of the church. So that's what we're going to see set and established in chapters 10, 11, and 12, is that in the midst of this cosmic, spiritual uh, darkness and evil and all of it God using to lead men to repent and they're not repenting, God's second recourse and really his final recourse is he sends out the church to bear witness to the world that the world might yet still be saved. All right, so that's what we're coming up on. The Lord be with you.